As we come now before the Word of God, please turn in your Bibles, if you'd like to read with me, to the book of Exodus in chapter 3. You'll recognize these first few verses as we covered them last week, but we'll venture a little bit further this morning. Uh, Exodus chapter 3. And before we read, uh, would you please pray with me? Uh, Lord Jesus, you tell us that whoever hears your word and does it is like a man who built his house and dug deep and laid a foundation on a solid rock so that even a flood cannot shake it. Lord, would you do that work now in us? Make us an unshakable people. Dig your word deeply in our hearts and cause us to believe. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Exodus in chapter 3. I want to take this morning uh, these first 12 verses. So Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt... You shall serve God on this mountain. This is the word of God. Here we are still in the beginning of a very long interaction at the burning bush between God and Moses. 
And if you look, you just kind of turn and glance in your page, the, the whole interaction ends in chapter 4, verse 18. At that point, after all of this, Moses returns back to his father-in-law, uh, intending to go back to Egypt. So in all of that space, a full chapter and a half, the writer focuses a lot of attention on this burning bush incident because it's really a pivot point of the Exodus story. God is about to take his people out of the land of Egypt where they're enslaved and into the good land where there is milk and honey. Now, I know milk and honey doesn't sound the tastiest to some of us. To me, it immediately makes me think of breakfast cereal. Uh, You know, I mean, maybe some would prefer that God would bring them into a land of, you know, lasagna and steak. I don't, I don't know, mac and cheese, uh, whatever, hot dogs, uh, whatever it is. Uh, But this uh, phrase, we know, is a common phrase in the scripture. We hear it again and again, the land of milk and honey. It's a poetic way to say that the the land was just full of, of goodness, that it was overflowing even with goodness, that it was flowing with milk and honey. The word literally there is oozing with it. It's just kind of gushing with that. So this is not just about the food. It's not just about the honey and the milk. This is about God abundantly providing with goodness for his people. Now, the issue at hand here is not just about out of Egypt and and into the good land of milk and honey. The issue is how do we get from point A to point B? That's the whole point of this meeting here at the, the burning bush. God says he's going to get the people from Egypt to the land of, of flowing with milk and, and honey. He tells us the way he's going to do it in verse 10. Come, he says, I will send you. God's told Moses, I've, I've heard their cries, and now I have come down, but Moses, I'm going to send you you. We call this the commissioning of Moses, that Moses, the servant of God, is specifically sent to carry out the will of God. We know from the scripture that God always, 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 always accomplishes his sovereign will. When God wills or decrees that something will happen, it never fails to happen without exception. And so God could just speak his will into existence and it would happen. Let there be light and there was light. Let my people go and the people went. It could have happened that way. God could have done that, but he didn't. And he usually doesn't. In fact, it's rare in the scripture to see God work that directly. Usually, God is working through people to accomplish his will. He's still the one doing his will, so his will will not fail without exception, but he's going to carry out his will now through Moses. I will bring my people out of Egypt, and Moses... I'm sending you to do it. That's the call. Now, if Moses had listened to God, 
If Moses had trusted God and obeyed God here, then the whole burning bush incident would be quite a bit shorter than what we see. If, If God had said, I'm sending you, and Moses had said, all right, point the way. But instead, we see Moses responding to God with a question. It's in verse 11. And Moses said to God, Who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? God's answer to Moses' question is, I will be with you. I will be with you. That's our focus this morning. This morning, I want to talk about the presence of God. The last week, if you were here, we talked about the holiness of God, that God is entirely set apart to the point where when Moses encounters him at the burning bush, even the ground itself becomes holy, and God says to Moses, stop, don't come any closer, Take off your sandals, this ground is holy. So while Moses is not able to come close to God, God is now coming close to Moses. And he is going to continue to be present with him. God's presence, to be clear, is different than God's omnipresence. Omni meaning all. So we talk about God's omnipresence as his being present everywhere. Do do I not fill the heaven and the earth, declares the Lord. It's true that God is everywhere. But that's not what we're talking about here. It's not just that God is present everywhere. It's that God is present here. That God is personally present with you. That sounds great. And it is great. But there's a problem with this, uh, for us at least, and it seems to be the case also for Moses. The problem is usually not that we don't know God is with us. Our problem is usually that we don't really believe that God is with us. It's not that we don't know he's with us, it's that we don't really believe it. We know Moses is going to go through a big process in the coming years, and eventually Moses does come to really believe this. Uh, In fact, uh, by the end of his life, we see in in Deuteronomy toward the end here, this is at the end of Moses' life before they cross into the, the milk and honey land, And by this time, it seems as if the the truth of God's presence has really sunk down into Moses' guts. That now that he's seen the Lord do everything he's done in Egypt and now throughout the wilderness, by the end of his life, when he's getting ready to pass the baton on to Joshua, he says this to Joshua, Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse uh, 7. Then Moses summoned Joshua, and he said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you will go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. So don't fear or be dismayed. 
Moses is now urging Joshua to remember the presence of God. He seems to say this confidently with a measure of even conviction. God will be with you. He will, he will, and he will never leave you or forsake you. That Moses sounds very different than the Moses we meet here at the burning bush. It almost sounds like a totally different guy. You know, when God is first commissioning Moses, sending him back to Egypt, and he says, I want you to go, Moses' response is a question. Those are his first words. Who am I? Now, what does Moses mean when he says that? What does Moses mean when he asks, who am I? Sometimes in the scripture, people ask that question as a sign of their humbleness. To be, to be honored to receive something. It's, it's a sign of acceptance, but humbly. So when the Lord makes a covenant uh, with David, and he says, I'm, I'm going to establish your house. I'm going to establish your kingdom. I'm making a promise to be with you. And, and that promise will eventually, we find out, be fulfilled in Jesus. David's response when God promises this to him, his first words are a question. Who am I? What is my house that you would do this to us? But when Moses, or when David says, who am I? He's not rejecting the promise. He's receiving it. Just humbly, thankfully. Oh, thank you, Lord, for promising this to me, but I'm not worthy of it. That's not the case with Moses here. So if the conversation that God is having with Moses during this burning bush account, if it ended here, if we chopped off and didn't hear the rest, we might wonder what exactly Moses means by asking this question. But we get the opportunity to read on, and it gives us a, a, quite a bit more clarity. If you keep reading, you'll notice that this question from Moses, this who am I, is the first in a series of questions a first in a series of excuses, really, to try not to go. Until finally, at the end, when none of the excuses take, finally Moses just goes, God, send somebody else. He doesn't want to go. So when Moses asks here, who am I? This is not coming from a place of humility. It's coming from a place of insecurity. We're seeing a very insecure man here. And while on some level I get this, <laughs> I can understand what he's going through, we also need to see that insecurity is very often sin. Let me say that again in case you missed it. Insecurity is often sin. Just a few weeks ago, we saw that earlier in Moses' young life, probably a young 40-something, we think, uh, that we saw the opposite uh, kind of guy. He was young and brash. He was almost overly secure, uh, to the point that when he saw an Egyptian uh, beating on a Hebrew, uh, Moses you know, decides to grab the bull by the horns, and he kills the Egyptian. This is probably coming out of his own uh, pride, his own overconfidence, that there's an attitude here that I can, I can fix all these things on my own. We usually recognize those sorts of things as sin. 
overconfidence, prideful, those things we go, aha, I noticed that as sin. But the opposite, things like insecurity, sometimes we miss that these are sin too. Sometimes we even treat them like something to be coddled. If we allow insecurity to take hold and to fester, insecurity can cost you your job. It can rob you of your freedom and your joy. It can steal away your relationships. Because insecurity underneath is really saying to another person, I don't trust you. I don't trust you. And I recognize that relationships are complex and challenging. There are times when we should not trust another person, maybe at least for a season. Trust in the scripture is not a virtue by itself, so there needs to be wisdom as far as how we apply our trust. But listen, when it comes to God, insecurity then causes us to say to God, God, I don't trust you. God, I need more from you. God, you are not enough for me. Do you see now how that is sin? How that's a pretty serious slap in the face. Insecurity can lead us to do and think some really crazy things. I mean, for Moses, who cares about his people, his own insecurity is essentially causing him to say no thank you to saving his own people. For us, insecurity might manifest itself in a number of ways. It, it, might, it might show up as doubt or anxiety or frustration. An insecure person sometimes belittles themselves or belittles other people. An insecure person might try to overinflate their own uh, their own accomplishments to try to compensate for their insecurity. And an insecure person might be kept up at night just worrying. Are my kids okay? How am I going to pay my bills? Is my health all right? You know, how did that conversation earlier today go? What, what does that person think of me? Is the coronavirus going to take over? Is this the end of everything? Am I good enough? Just kept up worrying out of our insecurity. We don't know exactly what went through Moses' mind but we do know what came out of his mouth. And out of the mouth comes the wellspring of the heart. So when Moses says, who am I? In other words, he's saying, I'm not the one for this. Lord, you picked the wrong guy. 
So Moses has chosen to hold on to his own insecurity rather than to hold on to his God. Now, because this kind of insecurity is often sin, it is fitting sometimes to rebuke that sin, to call it sin even very sharply. We know that Jesus saves us from sin, from the wrath against sin, but Jesus also wants to transform us now as saved people. So sometimes Jesus will take very sharp shears to our hearts to cut the thorns out. We need that. We need to be rebuked. It is also fitting at times to respond to this with encouragement that if someone is struggling with insecurity and we want to give help, support, encouragement to help a person push against the temptation to the sin of insecurity. But if we are to encourage people against insecurity, we need to give the right kind of encouragement. Because listen, if we give the wrong kind, it will just lead us right back into the same old sin. Here's what I mean. I've noticed now, uh, I've got kids, and it's common to read kids' books. I love board books because you can, well, step on them, and they don't really ruin. Uh, So it's nice. Reading lots of the board books are great. But I've noticed that a lot of these books for kids are really addressing the question, who am I? You're helping kids to grapple with that. It's a, it's, a, it's a good question to be asking. Who am I? The answer that many of the books are giving us, or some version of this, you are special. That's the answer often given. You, you are smart. You are kind. Um, you are capable. Those, are, those may be good things, but those things are not enough to give us security. Now, to be clear, it's not wrong (laughs) to praise others, especially children, you know, uh, if they've got gifts or skills or or things that they've done well. You know, I I think my wife and my girls and you all are special people. I want to tell you that regularly, even if we never praise a person ever. That's usually an issue with our own heart. But when we tell a person that they are special, even if that's true, that answer is not good enough for our insecurity. Because to tell a person that they are special will send that person right back into themselves. When we grow old, if we're honest enough with ourselves, if we're honest enough to look in and make a right assessment, we will notice that there are limits in ourselves We will see our own weaknesses. We will see our own instability and our own sin. If we look inward for an answer, we will be less secure, not more. There's a different path then to this, a better answer. Uh, We see a window into it from uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. A famous German pastor. One biographer uh, described him as pastor, martyr, prophet, spy. Boy, that's a life. Pastor, martyr, prophet, spy. Uh, But uh, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer lived during the Second World War in Germany, and he was famous uh, for speaking out and bravely standing against uh, the Nazi regime. 
So he was often praised as this brave hero. He was eventually imprisoned for the things that he said and did and eventually hanged. And during his time in prison, uh, he was considering all of what people were saying about him, all the praise he was receiving and wrestling with the difference between how others saw him and how he saw himself. And so he wrote in response to this a poem get my act together here. He wrote in response to this a poem called Who Am I? I want you to listen for his answer here at the end of the poem. This is Bonhoeffer's words. Who am I? Who am I? They often tell me that I would step from my cell's confinement calmly, cheerfully, firmly like a squire from his country house. Who am I? They often tell me I would talk to my warders freely and friendly and clearly as though it were mine to command. Who am I? They also tell me I would bear the days of misfortune equably, smilingly, proudly, like one accustomed to win. Am I then really all of that which other men say? Or am I only what I know of myself? Restless and longing and sick, like a bird in a cage, struggling for breath as though my hands were compressing my own throat, yearning for colors, for flowers, for the voices of birds, thirsting for words of kindness, for neighborliness, trembling with anger at despotisms and petty humiliation, tossing in expectations of great events, but powerlessly trembling for friends at an infinite distance, weary, empty at praying, at thinking, at making, faint and ready to say farewell to it all. Who am I? This? or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once, a hypocrite before others and before myself a contemptibly woe-begone weakling? Or is something within me still like a beaten army fleeing in disorder from victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, Thou knowest, O God, I am thine. That's where he lands at the end. As he's wrestling with these difficult questions, it's not the insecure ground of you are special, you are good, you are smart, you are brave, Bonhoeffer. He lands in the only secure place. Who am I? Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God. I'm thine. I'm yours. This is a version of what the Lord gives to Moses here. When Moses asks the question, who am I? The answer from God is not, you are strong. The answer from God is not, you are smart, you are skilled, you are special, chosen, you are my instrument. He doesn't even say, you're Moses. Just wait, people will make really exciting movies about you in a few thousand years. In fact, God in response does not answer with a you focus at all. His focus is on himself. The Lord's answer is, I will be with you. I will be present with you. 
I, the Lord, will be your help. I, the Lord, will be your guide. I, the Lord, will be your assurance. And God's not just going along as a cheerleader or a little sidekick. He's saying, I am God. I am the God of your father. I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob. And I am also the God of you. And I, God, will be with you. Do you want to encourage your kids or yourself in the midst of insecurity? This will do it. This is not just a little pick-me-up, a little uh, surge that will eventually wear off and wear out. This is an anchor that you can hold on to, that God is present with you. If you are struggling with insecurity, keep reminding yourself of these five little words from God. I will be with you. I will be with you. I will be with you. Say it over and over and over again until you begin to actually believe it. I will be with you. That will wash away your worries. I will be with you. That will break down your burdens. I will be with you. That will dismantle your doubts. I will be with you. That will shatter your sin. I will be with you. That will help stop the voices of Satan. I will be with you. That will change your fear into faith. I will be with you. That will teach you to trust in the Lord. To eventually say and believe, Lord, I trust you. The presence of God is immensely powerful. But in this last little bit here now as I wind us toward a close... I want us to notice one other thing. The presence of God is meant to be a comfort to us. It is meant to be a comfort to us. It is also meant to move us. The presence of God is also meant to move us. The Lord is not just saying to Moses, I will be with you. Sit down and let's have tea. He says, I will be with you, so go. Go down to Egypt. I will be with you. I am sending you. Now go, Moses. That is the call for the Christian also. Some of the last words that we hear from Jesus before he ascended back to the right hand of the Father. These are the very last words in Mark's gospel. Hear how Jesus ties together his sending of believers and his personal presence. Uh, this he says in Matthew chapter 28, verse uh, 18. And Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore 
and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. The end. Those are his last words here. I'll be with you always to the end of the age. Now go. If we want to make disciples of Jesus, if we want our church to grow, if we want people to come to know Jesus, if we want the kingdom of God to be expanded, it's going to take work. It's a work that God will do through us, but it is work. It will take learning to deepen our understanding of his teaching so that we actually know the faith that we're sharing. It it will take seeking obedience to Christ's commandments so that we model his life. It will take bravery to actually go and talk about Jesus to people. And it's going to take a lot of stepping outside of ourselves to follow Jesus. But we will never do any of that. We will never do any of that and only make excuses as long as we remain an insecure people. Are we that? Or are we ones who have the presence of God with us? We need and have the Holy Spirit who has planted his truth deep within us to cause us to trust and to believe this, to abide in God's presence, that it's really true in us. Jesus has said to us, I am with you always to the very end of the age. So now, go. Would you pray with me? Ah, Lord, uh, we know, Jesus, that you are the vine and we're the branches. And if we abide in your presence, we will bear much fruit. But apart from you, Jesus, we can do nothing. Would you help us to stay with you Lord, be present with us. You have called us. Help us to obey, trusting that you are with us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.